Well, as you all know, recently the World Cup ended. Uh, we lost. <laughs> it's over. It's done. But uh, similar to the Olympics, the World Cup is one of those moments where each country comes together to root for its team. Each country unites. And the good thing is sometimes the whole world comes together to root on their teams and show that we can be one, the oneness of humanity, we might say. Now, there's always some special moments in these events, and uh, we often, our eyes are caught by moments of the goodness of humanity. And one event that particularly, particularly caught my attention uh, and my eye this year was when Iran lost. You're going to see this up on the screen. One of their midfielders, as you'll see up on the screen, sat on the ground and just lost it in tears after we beat them 1-0. to But pretty quickly, two of our guys rushed over to him and crouched down in front of him to comfort him. It was a rare moment of unity, of common humanity, especially between two countries that typically don't like each other. Unity is a virtue we hear a lot about today in our society, how we need it, how it's virtuous, how it's something that we should strive for, how important it is, yet we all know it's so hard to come by. In reality, like I mentioned last week, it seems like the universe is almost working against the reality of unity. As I mentioned uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, the second law of thermodynamics literally says all things go to more and more disorder because everything is running down. Families will eventually break down. People will die off. Kids will move away. Things will change. And history tells us that businesses and institutions and even countries, even our eternal America, will someday fall apart. Unity is difficult to come by. It's rare to see. But this morning, we'll be reminded of the overwhelming message of the Bible, especially the letter to the Ephesians, which we've been studying the last two months, is that one day, someday, God will unite all things under Jesus Christ. He will bring all things to unity and completion and life forevermore through Jesus Christ, our beautiful Savior. He'll make all things new. The King will come back and restore the kingdom. Every tear He will wipe away. Now in the meantime, what Jesus prays, especially as we look in the Gospel of John, what He desires is that His people would be united. That we would be one. That while we might have some differences of opinion on the non-essentials this morning, we'd have a great togetherness, a great unity in the gospel and all of the implications of that beautiful gospel. That's really where I'm going today. That's my main idea. It's the main idea of this text. It's the main idea of this sermon. And it's this. God desires us, His church, to be united in Him. God desires His church to be united in Him. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one in him together as his church with him now my outline is also going to be up on the screen it's going to flow right from the passage and we're going to get at this by asking questions this morning number one where does unity come from how do we keep unity and why number three why is unity so 
important. We'll ask these questions of the passage, of the text, and what I hope this morning is we'll see the awesome unity we have in God and the reason why we need to keep it with all of our hearts. Now before we get into that first question, I'm going to read the passage as a whole. I'm going to just kind of survey this passage so we can see what we're looking at again. Chapter 4, verse 1, it'll be up on the screen. It'll be, it begins like this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. And then here comes the charge. Here comes the marching orders. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That calling, of course, is our salvation, our knowing of God. So we see this charge here. Walk worthy of God's love. Walk worthy of His grace. But how? Well, there's lots of ways we can respond to God's grace and mercy in our lives. But the next few verses tell us that foundational to walking worthy is unity. Relational unity. Relational harmony with others who call on the name of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, verse 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All traits that have to do with unity in the community, harmony and peace in the church. And well, why do we do that? What's the point? Well, because of what it says in the next few verses, verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Said another way, foundational to living worthy of his calling is wanting to see great harmony and great unity in his church. And we want to see that unity, and we want to see that harmony because of the truth that there's one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, once and for all, handed down to the apostles. There's one miracle, the resurrection, one gospel, available for all and free for all. So there's essentially the sermon. Usually we give you the main idea and the outline, but this morning we've given you the cliff notes. We've given it away. But what I want to do this morning is dive deeper into this passage and look at these questions to think about why is unity so important, why is it so good, and why is Jesus' final prayer so focused on this idea of unity? So let's look at this first question, where does unity come from? Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. See, Again, we see the charge, we see the marching orders, we see the so what. Walk or live your life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Live it out. Don't just talk the walk, instead walk the talk. But very importantly, notice the word therefore at the beginning of this charge. As preachers of old used to say, what's that therefore, therefore? Well, it's there because we're picking up in chapter 4. And this is the conclusion, the so what, to everything that's been said for three whole chapters. For three chapters, or for the last two months, we've been hearing about God's amazing grace and mercy seen in Jesus Christ. For three whole chapters, Ephesians is flooded with the miracle of grace, with the coming of Jesus and the implications of Jesus. Salvation, grace, his mercy. In Ephesians 1, verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself 
through Jesus Christ. That means because of grace, we have access to God as Father. It means access and security and an inheritance. Verse 14, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Faith in Christ leads to the Spirit coming into your life. In chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And in chapter 3, we see that grace is comprehensive. It's not just individual. Even the Jew and the Gentile can be reconciled into one new community called the church. But then here we are in chapter 4. It all comes together. The so what is here. The conclusion to the matter. What do we do with grace? What do we do with His forgiveness and His mercy and His kindness in our life? Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That word called means our salvation, our life with God, grace. And it sets the stage to answer this first question, where does unity come from? And the answer is, our unity comes from our common salvation in Jesus Christ. In other words, our salvation, our calling, our relationship with God is not only vertical, but it's also horizontal. Salvation doesn't just change our relationship to God, it changes our relationship to ourselves and to other people. That means to know God is to belong to His people, to belong to His church. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. It's never Jesus and I, it's always Jesus and us. We can't have Christ and hate His bride. They're one and the same. To be saved is not just to be saved to God, it's to be saved to His people, to His family, the church. But how does all this happen? How can this happen? How can we walk into a room with different ethnicities, different backgrounds, with different common interests, different hobbies? Some of you actually like soccer with different genders with different ages, different stages in life, different social statuses, different politics. How can we ever have unity with so many awful and annoying people? How can we ever have unity in the church? Back in the 1900s, a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous British pastor. He came to faith in Jesus in a very real way in his 20s. But in the 1920s, he started out as a doctor in London. Lloyd-Jones originally was on the top of his med school class. He had the reputation of being one of the most smartest and hardest working med students in anybody's recent memory. And as soon as he graduated and did his residencies, he was quickly snatched up, given all these fellowships, and eventually he became the assistant to the doctor of the royal family. But then as we know, Lloyd-Jones became a Christian. He met Jesus for real, and it brought some changes, we might say. He eventually leaves the medical field and he becomes a preacher and he goes to a very poor part of the coast of Wales and he took a small little church there. And what he found there, to his shock, was that the Christians he met, who were very poor, fishermen and their wives, many illiterate, he found a bond there. He found a joy there. And it was a shock because it was against all of his training. Everything in his life 
up until that point had equipped him to feel like these people were below him, that he was better than them. In fact, he got his identity from that. And he realized something had changed, though, since he had became a Christian. He even says in one of his sermons, I really have changed. Something has completely rearranged the furniture of my identity. And now I feel a oneness with people of different classes and different people that if I wasn't a Christian, I never would have been able to give them the time of day. I never would have any sense of unity with them at all. The point is, his salvation, the grace of God, his connection to Jesus Christ rearranged the furniture of his heart. It changed the identity that he had. It took away his need to define himself by looking down on others. Instead, now he looks up and he sees the face of Jesus and that defines him. That humbles him, but also it reassures him at the same time. And in a way that makes it so possible to have unity, a real unity with others who call on his name. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, tells two similar stories. In the first, he says he knew a young guy from the Deep South who was very, very, very conservative. It was an important part of who he was. But he was also a strong Presbyterian. Now, sometimes committed American Presbyterians often get this sense that they want to return to the Promised Land. And the Promised Land for Presbyterians, of course, is none other than Scotland, because that's where Presbyterian, Presbyterianism came from. And so Keller says this guy, he goes to Scotland, and he spends a summer there in a very, very, very staunchly conservative Presbyterian church. I mean very, very, very conservative. Only singing psalms. Not, not even hymns. Capitol Hill Baptists would look moderate compared to this church. <laughs> These were the kinds of conservative Presbyterians that if, you, if they caught you watching TV on the Sabbath, you're not, watch, you're not taking communion the next day. But... What was so shocking was that after spending a few weeks with these very, very, very conservative people, this guy realized something. With his jaw dropped, he says, they're all socialists. They were all economically socialist. And after he comes to this realization, he was like, how can this be? How can these uber conservative Christians be economically socialist? And so what happens is, he starts listening to them in a way that he never would have ever listened to socialists in any other situation ever. And when he comes back to the States, he doesn't change his party affiliation, but he says, this changed me. He says, I realized as I was talking to them that there was a bond that we had between us. I think they're wrong here, but it helped me to understand and listen to them in a way I never would have listened in the past. If I wasn't a Christian, if they weren't Christians, it would have never happened. The other story Keller tells is about a Bosnian man he met who lived in New York City for a long time. This man was in America for a long time. He wasn't a Christian guy, and it was an election year. And in passing, he tells Keller, you know, the Democrats really hate the Republicans here in America. But he says to Keller, you know, I'm a Democrat. I've decided to be a Democrat. But I tell you this, if I ever met a Bosnian who's a Republican, politics don't matter because we're one. And Keller says, well, why? And he goes, because we've been through life and death together. We've been through wars and misery together. We've been through the same experiences together. The point is, in all of these stories, it's Jesus who gives us 
unity this morning. It's in His grace. In Jesus, we've been through death and life together. We were dead in our sins, but He raised us to life in Him. We've been through the same experiences. We have the same spirit, the same salvation. He has rearranged the furniture of our hearts to not find our ultimate identity in our life season or our job or our culture, but in Him. He's leveled the playing field. It blasts it wide open so that we can have real unity around ultimate things. Now, of course, this doesn't mean limitless unity. Christian unity doesn't sweep evil under the rug or dismiss deep ethical conflicts with other people who say they're Christians just so we can sit in a circle and sing Kumbaya. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher, once said it really well, although I commune at the Lord's table with men of all creeds, yet with a slaveholder I have no fellowship of any sort of kind. I would as soon think of receiving a murderer into church membership as I would a slave owner. His point is that there is a powerful unity in Jesus Christ. It's powerful. So powerful that it's a unity in diversity, but it has its limits. The big idea here is that in Jesus Christ we have a real unity. The answer to this first question of where does our unity come from? The answer is that it comes through our salvation in Jesus Christ, through God's Spirit, through His Spirit, not ethnic background or common interests or hobbies or gender or season of life or social status or marital status or anything else. It comes from the fact that we're one in the Gospel. We're one in Him. The passage continues and we see an answer to the second question, how do we keep unity? How do we keep unity? Verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So the marching orders, the so what, is to walk worthy of the calling that we've received. There's lots of ways we can do that, but foundational to all of it is unity. Relational unity, relational harmony with others who call on the name of the Lord. Notice there's five traits listed here. And each of those traits feeds into the next. Humility starts in the heart. It's a disposition of the heart and it leads to gentleness with others. Kindness, meekness. Shout out to Gentle and Lowly, the book that some of you have read. And patience, another disposition of the heart. which is not, uh, It's all about uh, not losing it or dismissing someone when they don't meet your expectations or timeline. That leads the ability to bear with others in love. And to bear with one another in love uh, is to forgive them when they fall short. To see the, the best in them. To hope for the best for them. To not seek revenge. We do all this because it feeds into our task to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That is, we don't create unity. We don't create peace. As Christians, we maintain the unity and the peace that we already have in the Spirit by living in such a way that our hearts are marked by humility, gentleness, patience, and love towards one another. Now notice, as I mentioned, each of these traits listed here, they're collective. They're not just individual. And the aim of all of them is unity. Said another way, what will mark us as living worthy of the calling we have received is this eagerness for unity. Unity in the church. Oneness. If we're living worthy of the calling, we won't be indifferent to wanting to keep this unity in the church. 
A year ago, we were finishing up our study in the book of Acts, and Acts tells a story about how the early church was so effective in quickly spreading the gospel throughout the world. And one thing that we saw was that the early church was marked by a strong unity in the spirit. They fought to keep their unity. And four particular things jumped out at us when we read the book of Acts. The early church was one in sharing their possessions. They were one in sharing their problems. They were one in sharing their truth and they, it, the truth. And they were one in sharing in failure. Likewise, this morning, to strive for unity, here's four very practical ways modeled after the early church. Number one, we should be one in sharing our possessions. Acts 4 says that in the early church, no one treated their possessions as if they were their own. Now, this doesn't mean that there wasn't any private property in the early church, but it does mean that there was a drastic open-handedness with their possessions. The gospel, faith in Jesus, changed how they viewed money and resources. So as a result, they shared their possessions. They shared their space. They shared everything, just like the church should be one in sharing its possessions. Number two, we should be one in sharing our problems. Galatians 6 says, bear one another's burdens, that we should bear one another's burdens. A lot of Christians suffer quietly. The lie is that you can't say anything because you're going to get judged. But the gospel reminds us this morning, we all have problems. The gospel allows us to admit that we have need. We don't have to protect ourselves from being seen as flawed in our pride. That's not the gospel. There's no band-aid without a wound. There's no gospel without problems. The gospel is that we've been exposed. But God has loved us and He's working to heal us. And He wants to do that through the face of your brother and sister in Christ. Number three, we should be one in sharing the truth. Ephesians 4 will eventually say, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Truth is the essence of a real Christian community. We don't just play up the love and never speak the truth. We should speak the truth in love. The other day I was with Wesley and I tuned in to the King's Church YouTube stream. I was trying to watch something in the service and as digital Wesley started to talk, real life Wesley said, turn that off, I hate how I sound. A lot of us feel this way when we listen to ourselves on audio or video, don't we? We're like, am I really that low or high? Am I really that whiny when I speak? Do I have a sore throat? Sheesh, what is, what is wrong with how I sound? And the reason is because when we talk in real life, we don't fully hear ourselves. Right now, I hear myself, myself through the bones in my neck. I don't fully hear myself the way that you hear me. The point is nobody can see themselves or hear themselves except through the vantage point of an outside set of eyes or ears. Nobody can see themselves or hear themselves except through the vantage point of an outside set of eyes or ears. If you live in a community where people only love you and will never tell you the truth, you will not have true self-knowledge. You will not grow. You will not become the person you need to be. Churches need to be places where we speak the truth in love. That means we need to have courage, we need to have grace to call each other to transform, to be different, and to be better. And lastly, we should be one in sharing our failure. 
We should be one in sharing our failure or failures. Here in DC, when someone fails, this culture essentially just gets rid of them. Sign a confidentiality agreement, gone, done. And sadly, that also extends often to not just professional environments, but also social circles. If you fail, you are out. But take a look at the church. Look at the two greatest leading figures in the church, Paul and Peter. Paul, literally before he was a believer, took other Christians out. And yet when he meets Jesus for real, other believers who probably suffered because of Paul brought him in. They loved him. And eventually they looked to him as a leader. And Peter, look at Peter. Peter denies Jesus. He is a coward. He is passive. And yet Jesus looks at him and he says, although you're the, the greatest failure of my disciples, if you plunge yourself into my grace, you'll be the best leader of them all. See, Christian community, if it's done right, can actually incorporate failure and turn it into wisdom. In the church, we don't aim to expel failure. We welcome, we reconcile, we heal, we incorporate. We're not afraid of failure because beauty, as the scriptures say, come from ashes. So that's it. That's the answer to the second question. The answer to the second question is we keep unity by keeping the unity of the Spirit, by being transformed in our inner character and having this oneness together in life. And the text goes on and we see the answer to the final question this morning and the conclusion of today, why is unity important? So we see these marching orders, the so what, to live worthy of the calling we've received, or to aim for humility, gentleness, patience, love, to maintain the unity of the Spirit, but why? Why is it all so important? Well, because of verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Said another way, we want unity, we desire oneness because of the fact that there is a oneness in God. If there were two lords, maybe there would be two factions. If there were two faiths, maybe there would be two different sections. If there were two baptisms, perhaps there would be a lot of different denominations, which there happens to be a debate about that. If there were two fathers, maybe there'd be two families. If there were two spirits, maybe there'd be two different types of people. But in God, there's one body. There's one spirit. There's one hope. There's one Lord. There's one faith, one baptism. There's one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's talking about oneness. The point is that our unity... Our oneness is so important because it's saying something about the oneness of God. How the body of Christ is big enough to bring in all sorts of kinds of people and create a unity in diversity. How the Spirit is powerful enough to give life and create unity in all those who call on His name. How our hope can unite us because we have one Lord who gave it all for us on the cross. Jesus says in his final prayer that what he desires is that us, his people, would be united, that we would be one. And the reason he gives, why it's so important, the answer to this third and final question, the reason is so that the world will know the Father really did send him. 
In other words, what Jesus says, unless the world sees a united, loving, compelling community, unless the world sees a community that's really one, the world is going to struggle to believe that I am real. He's saying it's not going to matter if we're eloquent or articulate or strong on the issues. Nobody's going to hear us unless it's backed up by a strong community. The negative here, of course, is that it's possible to make Jesus look ugly to the world. But on the other hand, the amazing news, something we've pulled off so well at this church, is it's possible to show the beauty of Jesus to the world. That He can make all the difference. That He welcomes all. That He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That He can change us from the inside out. As we move to the Lord's Supper this morning, we're reminded of the message of Ephesians. Every culture on this earth has stories about everything falling apart, and then a king shows up and sits on his throne and rules with justice and puts down evil, and everything is just fine. There are so many stories like this. They're in every culture, and yet when you look at history, the actual record of kings is terrible. It's abysmal. They're usually tyrants. They never deliver. Yet every single culture on the face of this planet has this persistent idea that if the true king shows up, somehow everything will be put right. It's in movies, it's in stories, still to this day are based on it. And it always catches our attention. Well, why is that? Well, here's a possibility. It's the true story of the world. Perhaps it's a memory trace in every human heart. The promise that one day Jesus Christ will return. His second advent and he'll sit on the throne and he'll rule with justice and he'll put down all evil and everything will be just fine. As Ephesians says, God will unite all things under Christ. For now, we preview that reality as his church, as his community of faith of what that will someday look like.